Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Sharish Nadkerni, the author of From Startup to Exit, An Insider's Guide to Launching and Scaling Your Tech Business. Sharish, welcome. Great to be here. And we're uh, glad to have you. So before we start talking about the book, could you tell the audience about your background? Uh, you bet. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur based out of Seattle. Uh, I started my career in the late 80s uh, with Microsoft in the early days of Microsoft when they had only MS-DOS. Um, I worked for Microsoft for about 12 years. Uh, I launched um, email products for them, uh, did the Hotmail acquisition, and then launched MSN.com. And then after that, I started three different companies and achieved two successful exits. Yeah, I, and, and that gave you great examples. Uh, for this book, which is really terrific. And every, actually, I think it should be a book that's in college for every college entrepreneur to read this. So why did you write this book? Well, I have a, a little bit of an idealistic vision uh, for the book. Uh, you may have heard the statistic that nine out of 10 startups fail. Uh, but the ones that succeed have an enormous impact on the economy. Uh, if you look at the top 10 companies around the world by valuation, nine of them are, are technology companies, companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, et cetera. So with this book, what I'm hoping to do is to make many more startups succeed. Uh, so if I can change that statistic from one to two companies uh, succeed, uh, I, you know, uh, hopefully I can have a pretty significant impact on the economy and, and the tech industry overall. And what do you hope the readers get out of your book besides uh, increasing the chances of their success? Well, first of all, I'm hoping to inspire people to become entrepreneurs, you know, those who are on the fence. Um, I want to kind of remove the obstacles and, and make them understand that it's not, you know, terribly hard to become an entrepreneur. And then I want to provide them with a guidebook that takes them all the way from ideation to achieving product market fit to fundraising, to, you know, scaling their company and then ultimately finding an exit. So I want to provide them with a guidebook on how they can successfully launch and scale their company. Uh, why did you become an entrepreneur? And, and please talk about the first idea you launched, which didn't quite go as well as you would have hoped. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, you know, one of the things I, I did when I was at Microsoft was the acquisition of Hotmail. Uh, and Hotmail at that time was a you know uh, free uh, email service, the first one that was uh, web-based uh, uh, email service at that time, and they were growing very rapidly. Uh, so that really got me inspired to become an entrepreneur, and that was the time when the dot-com boom was happening and was uh, relatively easy for companies to get uh, started. And so I said, um, you know, if if Hotmail was successful as a consumer email service, why not offer an enterprise-grade email service that we could offer to corporations that had enterprise features and calendaring and scheduling and make that available in the cloud? So what was the ultimate, what happened with that uh, idea? So the um, uh, what we found out was that um, we were um, ahead of our time um, with, with that idea. Uh, we got some traction, but not enough. Uh, traction to really make the company succeed. And then uh, we decided to pivot that solution uh, to a mobile email solution. This was in the early days of BlackBerry. Uh, this was in the, in the early 2000 timeframe and BlackBerry was just getting started. And uh, we felt that we could take our technology and make it available on commodity phones, which were connect getting connected to the internet at that time. And so we pivoted into providing a mobile email solution and ultimately that became successful and the company was acquired by BlackBerry 
and the technology we developed became known as BlackBerry Internet Email, uh, which uh, you know scaled to about 50 million BlackBerry users. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank uh, you. You mentioned something very interesting. That is building something, a product ahead of its time. Most of the great successes like Amazon, Facebook, Google of the last, you know, I guess, 30 years um, weren't the first, second, or even third in any category, yet they became winners. What did you learn from your entrepreneurial experience at Teamon, and how do you make sure you aren't too early or too late? Yeah, that's always a tough uh, question because, uh, you know, oftentimes you have a great idea, uh, but, um, you know, you can be too early for the market. Uh, in my case, uh, I had the hubris of thinking that, you know, I was going to, you know, create this new category of enterprise-grade, uh, you know, web-based email. Uh, but I was clearly ahead of my time, and I think what would have been Better is if I had actually conducted customer interviews to see if they were comfortable storing their uh, confidential email uh, in my cloud-based service. I think that was the issue that I faced was that even though we provided many more features uh, and made it really easy for companies to have enterprise-grade email uh, over the web, um, they were at that time not comfortable storing that information uh, on the internet. One of the uh, questions. So, if I'd conducted, go ahead. I was going to say, if I'd conducted customer interviews, I would have found out that perhaps my solution was ahead of ahead of its time. One of the questions from the audience is: Do you see any changes in the strategies entrepreneurs will post COVID uh, will use post COVID to build successful companies? Uh, then pre COVID, the scale of tech disruption and innovation have ex exponentially increased. Yeah, you know, this is a great uh, time uh, to start a company. Um, you know, a lot of companies are getting funded uh, today. Uh, you know, uh, you know, with significant valuations, um, and there's a lot of money available from investors to invest in great ideas. Um, and COVID has really brought about a significant transformation in the way that we work, in the way that we shop. Uh, you know, remote work, as you know, has become uh, very popular now. And so a lot of companies are being formed to allow people to work remotely. Uh, online shopping uh, has increased tremendously. Uh, so there's a great opportunity to create new brands uh, like Warby Parker or Allbirds and others uh, and really go direct to consumer uh, and create, uh, you know, great uh, e-commerce uh, brands. So there are many, many opportunities that are available post-COVID than were available pre-COVID. How, uh, how can startups uh, end up working in different places and still manage uh, to be able to play off of each other in order to come up with the new ideas? Because like in the beginning, you know, being in the same room or, or uh, and interacting every day is what helps you iron out all the different things that are going on in the business. Is that will companies not need to be able to get together on a regular basis? Employees and and founders and their employees get together on a regular basis and still succeed at building uh, great companies. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a that's a great observation. Um, uh, I'm of the mind uh, that uh, the management team, uh, the, the founders of the company and the key executives uh, need to work with each other in the same physical room uh, a majority of the time. Uh, so remote work is possible between the founders and the management team, but they should be meeting with each other at least two or three times a week to kind of run through strategy and, and, and uh, you know, how marketing is going, et cetera. However, uh, when it comes to your engineering team and your marketing team, et cetera, uh, those can be remote uh, as long as they're in the same time zone. Um, so it, it depends on who you are in the company and what is your role. So the key execs, I think, should be, uh, you know, working together with each other physically as much as possible, but the rest of the organization can be, can be remote. Um, on your second venture, I love this name, Live Mocha, and I actually heard of Live Mocha 
before because I was mm-hmm. taking language lessons also. Mm-hmm. Uh, Live Mocha, an online language learning platform. Uh, please talk about how you came up with that idea and what you learned from your first venture that positively impacted the success of the second venture. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, Live Mocha was a... Uh, language learning uh, platform on the internet. Um, and the uh, idea came about, uh, uh, you know, funnily enough, uh, uh, because of a, of a trip that I took to Spain with my family. Uh, my, my kids were teenagers at that time. They were learning Spanish in, in middle school. And uh, we got lost. Uh, and at that time, you know, nobody was uh, around us was speaking English. So I turned to my kids and said, okay, you've been learning Spanish in in uh, middle school, uh, please, uh, you know, talk to these individuals and get directions to our hotel. And uh, surprisingly, uh, they, they really could not carry out the conversation to save their lives. Um, and so it, it really uh, emphasized to me uh, the importance of uh, conversational uh, skills. Uh, and that, you know, in, in school and other uh, mediums, you know, you're taught through a textbook. Um, and while you can learn the vocabulary, you really don't understand how to speak. Um, and so that was kind of the germination of the idea around Limoka was uh, the notion that you need to be able to practice your language, language skills. And the only way that you can do that is by practicing with a native language speaker. And the idea behind Limoka was that not only would you um, learn the language through instruction, but that you would be connected with native speakers around the world who would, who would uh, teach you that native language and, you know, you could converse with them and practice your language skills. And, and what did you learn from that impacted your, your second venture? Like what are the takeaways you took from the first venture that allow you to be more successful the second time around? Yeah. Um, so the first venture, as we discussed, uh, I had not really done, um, any significant you know, market research and was surprised to find out when customers did not really adopt my solution. So with the second time around, even though I knew that language learning uh, was uh, widespread and a, and, a, and, a, and a pressing need in many countries, uh, I conducted a significant number of um, interviews uh, with potential customers uh, to see uh, if they would embrace a solution uh, like Limoca. Uh, and then um, we uh, uh, quickly, uh, you know, built our solution um, uh, before we, you know, launched it. We did extensive uh, usability testing uh, with customers uh, to make sure that what they were telling us uh, in the interviews, they were telling us this, hey, this would be a great solution. Uh, was that really uh, happening in practice? You know, were people actually using the solution? And we got a great response. And so that gave me the confidence that uh, we could go out and build it further and then launch it into the market. One of the questions from the audience goes back to your first venture, which is, could you elaborate on the Hotmail acquisition? You know, what did you go, uh, go through and so forth? Yeah, you bet. So um, this was in, uh, in the 1997 timeframe. Um, uh, I was at uh, Microsoft and working on MSN the msn.com and uh, one of the things that we were lacking at that time was an email offering and email to us was very strategic because it's a it's a very sticky application right you use it uh, multiple times a day if not every day um, and so um, we could have built that solution internally but at that time uh, we discovered that uh, hotmail uh, was was becoming a very popular uh, web-based email service. Uh, they were uh, adding about a million users a month at that time. And um, so I uh, decided that uh, it would be better for us to um, do an acquisition and get that product into the market as quickly as possible, uh, especially because uh, we were behind other competitors like Yahoo and other web-based portals. And so I had to work really hard to convince uh, Bill Gates uh, to make that acquisition because we ended up paying $400 million for a company that was, you know, doing two to 3 million in revenue. Uh, but we felt it was very strategic for us to make that acquisition. So it took quite a bit of convincing internally, uh, but ultimately uh, even at that price, it turned out to be a great acquisition for Microsoft. 
I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs wonder, what's the math that goes behind something like that? Because when Facebook uh, bought WhatsApp, they bought it uh, for $19 billion, like $4 billion in cash and the rest in stock. How do you guys come up with math for something that's only doing 2 or $3 million in revenue to pay $300 Because we'd all like to come up with that idea. Yeah, so uh, really it's what the market is uh, willing to pay. Uh, and at that time, uh, Hotmail was growing so rapidly. And then you had the, the, the dot-com boom going on where companies were going public at huge valuations. Um, Hotmail at that time had a choice of going public, you know, at a, you know, six, $700 billion, you know, valuation. Those were crazy valuations at that time. And so um, we could offer less uh, than, you know, six, seven hundred million uh, because there was certainty of, uh, you know, getting the Microsoft stock and the value that accrued from the Microsoft stock versus going public. And then later on, you know, having a stock, uh, you know, take a dive. Um, and so uh, we were able to convince the founders to go through an acquisition with Microsoft with the certainty of getting Microsoft stock and the value it provided. Uh, but we had to end up, we had to end up paying a significant amount because we knew that the alternative was to go public at a six, seven hundred million dollar valuation. Interesting. What, what was the process you went through to evaluate your ideas and after going through it, what do you recommend other entrepreneurs do? So I, I certainly recommend, um, you know, doing uh, uh, customer interviews and doing uh, early testing of your, of your solution. Uh, and one of the things I recommend is um, when you go talk to customers, don't even talk about your solution first. You know, ask them what are their top three pain points. And, and and ascertain if the pain that you're addressing is even one of the top three you know pain points uh, because you know you may be addressing a pain point but it's not if it's not top of mind for customers then they will not spend the time and money to acquire your solution um, and then uh, you need to understand um, you know how deep is the pain point. Uh, uh, what are they doing to address that pain point? Uh, typically, if they're cobbling together a solution internally, that's a great indication that uh, that's a significant pain point that they even took the effort to actually build their own solution. And then test your, uh, your value proposition and solution with the customer. Uh, and once you've done that, then build um, you know, um, a, you know, a, a, a prototype of your product and actually test that with your customers, bring them into the office, uh, have them use it, uh, see how they're using it, and really understand if your solution is addressing their pain point. So that's the process that, that I followed with, with Limoca, and that's the process I would recommend for entrepreneurs. How long do you let somebody beta test your product before you start charging them? Uh, it, it really depends on the, uh, you know, the solution, how complicated uh, it is and how much time it takes for them to get uh, on board and so forth. But, you know, I, I don't, I, I think most, most people should not take more than, you know, one or two months to really beta test uh, a product. Um, and what you need to do in that period of time is really understand the user flow, how are they using the, the product, uh, what issues they're running into, et cetera. Uh, but I would say a good one or two months is enough to, um, and then you need to, you know, uh, force the customer to buy a product. Uh, and if they don't, then take it away uh, because uh, then you really know if you have achieved, you know, product market fit. Uh, and if they don't complain, when you take the solution away, then you know that you have some work to do to really convince customers. Uh, what's the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make during the beta testing process? Well, it's not just the beta testing process, but the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make is the mistake that I made, which is uh, they, you know, a lot of times uh, entrepreneurs are technologists. Uh, they know how to build a solution and they think that the problem that they're having is a problem that their customers will have. And so they go ahead and build the solution with themselves as customers in mind. Uh, but in reality, their actual customers uh, may have very different problems, may have very different needs. And so, uh, again, I recommend highly that uh, uh, people uh, go to customers, understand their pain points, 
before they actually go out and build a solution. I can't begin to tell you how right that is because one of my ventures, we built this uh, platform based on what we thought was the right way to go. And then when we showed it to clients, they said, yo, well, this is all well and fine, but this is how we really want it. And if we had talked to them from the beginning, it would have saved us months and a lot of money uh, from building it. So the second time I did a platform, I actually involved all of the uh, potential users in the actual design of it. And now we're just we're just launching it and starting to get some traction. So, yeah, I have to support that experience as well. How do you spot trends? Do you read specific magazines, listen to podcasts, read investor research, go to trade shows? What's your advice there? Because some people don't have an idea of themselves, but they want to be an entrepreneur and they want to find something that they think that uh, people want. Because all my ideas basically came either from reading or experiencing. But what do you suggest? Uh, there are two main ways in which I uh, spot trends. Uh, one is uh, by reading uh, certain kind of cutting-edge uh, publications. Uh, so whether that's uh, uh, TechCrunch uh, or TechMeme or MIT uh, Tech Review, uh, these are some of the publications that uh, you know are talking about some of the cutting-edge technologies out there. And the second way that I um, learn about trends is by meeting with startups. So I'm also now uh, an angel uh, investor. Uh, and so uh, I meet a lot of companies here in, in Seattle. Uh, there are a number of accelerators here as well, such as Techstars, uh, where they have uh, demo days. And so I attend those demo days to see what new technologies uh, are being adopted. And that gives me a good sense for you know what's really kind of resonating in the marketplace. Uh, I mentioned earlier about how leaders like Amazon, Facebook, and Google entered spaces inhabited by others. You wrote about Microsoft taking on Lotus. What are the strategies to take on and beat entrenched incumbents? So tell them a little bit about that story and then how, how do you beat entrenched incumbents? Yeah, that's a very instructive story uh, because uh, when, I, when I joined uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, this was before... Uh, Windows became uh, popular. Um, and at that time, uh, Lotus 123 and WordPerfect and DBase were the market leaders. Uh, and Microsoft had uh, applications as well, you know, Microsoft Word, Microsoft Multiplan, and Excel, and others. And, uh, you know, the incumbents uh, uh, like WordPerfect and 123 uh, were really entrenched. Uh, people were used to their user interface, uh, they had built macros with, you know, Lotus 1, 2, 3. And even though Microsoft had really ex excellent applications, they didn't really make much headway because uh, displacing incumbents can be really, really hard. Uh, it's only when Windows uh, came out and became started becoming popular that things changed. Uh, and uh, what happened was uh, the competitors like WordPerfect and Lotus 1, 2, 3, they delayed introducing applications to Windows. And then when they did introduce applications for Windows, they simply ported their DOS applications and they were not really good uh, Windows applications. Whereas Microsoft uh, took advantage of the introduction of Windows and, and obviously built uh, Word and Excel from the ground up to really take advantage of Windows uh, capabilities and graphical user interface. And uh, slowly over time, um, you know, uh, the Microsoft applications became um, more popular uh, because they were the best, you know, Windows applications in, in addition to being the best word processor and word and, and uh, spreadsheet. And then uh, Microsoft uh, combined these applications into something called Microsoft Office, which, which we all know about today. And uh, Microsoft Office became hugely popular. So the key lesson that I learned out of that is that incumbents are very, very hard to displace. Um, you mentioned that you're, you like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Why do those two why those two technologies? And what else do you think offers great opportunity? 
Yeah, I think, uh, so machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, have really taken off in the last, you know, three to four years. Um, and that's been a combination of factors uh, because uh, computing has become really uh, inexpensive. Uh, uh, and then now you have cloud-based uh, services from Amazon and Microsoft and Google, where they're offering uh, machine learning and AI services that you can incorporate into your application. And what uh, you know, machine learning and AI can, can do is help you build really intelligent applications that can uh, personalize, uh, you know, greatly personalize uh, the, the content that's being delivered uh, to you. Uh, for example, if you are an e-commerce um, site uh, using uh, machine learning, uh, which can track, you know, how different users with different profiles are being attracted to different products, you can greatly personalize the, uh, the products that are being offered to your customers. And so with greater personalization, you can have greater conversion and drive up your sales uh, significantly. So, um, you know, today, uh, almost every uh, solution, every application out there is using machine learning and AI in some form or shape. Yeah, I don't think we would have solved the uh, the COVID vaccine issue without those things, right? I mean, that's uh, set up right. the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, please explain the concept of product market fit and some successful examples. Yeah, this was a concept that was uh, really popularized by Mark Andreessen, you know, the founder of uh, Netscape. Um, and what that means is that uh, you're building a product that greatly satisfies a specific, you know, market need. And, uh, you know, I, I really emphasize to entrepreneurs the importance of taking the time to really ensure strong, you know, product market fit uh, before you actually go ahead and, and uh, you know, market the product, before you spend a lot of money marketing the product, make sure that your cust- your your product really uh, you know, precisely addresses your customers' needs. Uh, and the way to do that is through uh, early testing, uh, bringing the, the product in front of your customers and making sure that they're highly engaged uh, with your solution and they're coming back to use it time and time again. Uh, one of uh, the listeners wanted to know, what made Bill Gates not develop Hotmail.com type email in-house? Why didn't he just do it himself? Yeah, that's a, that was a key issue uh, internally. At that time, Microsoft had an enterprise email solution. Um, and the uh, email team said, hey, you know, we can build the uh, uh, Hotmail type solution within nine months. Uh, but I knew from prior, uh, prior examples uh, that it would have taken Microsoft another year even decide to do something about uh, you know web-based email, and then it would take another you know nine to twelve months to uh, build out a solution. So we would have been delayed into the market for another two years. In the meantime, Hotmail would have taken off and really become the default de facto standard, and it wouldn't have mattered if Microsoft came out with a solution two years later. So time to market was essential for us uh, both in having a market-leading uh, web-based email service, but also, uh, you know, msn.com was coming from behind and we needed something like Hotmail to really goose up the uh, uh, the user signage. Yeah, and um, most everybody has a Hotmail account still, right? Um, right. Now, of course, Gmail has taken over, but uh, at one point, Hotmail was the most popular email service. They had over 300 million, you know, email accounts. Well, why didn't they improve Hotmail like... Um, Google did with Gmail because now a lot of people don't even use Microsoft products. They strictly use Gmail products because it kind of mirrors it, but it's great. Well, that's a, that's the challenge that you face. Uh, once, uh, you know, a company gets acquired by a much larger company, uh, things slow down and, um, you know, there's the rate of innovation uh, really uh, slows down dramatically. The, uh, what happened with the Hotmail acquisition was that the founders left after one year. And so, the, you know, there was significant brain drain and some of the key innovation that they had pioneered uh, left the company. And so that's, you see that time and time again, where a hot company is acquired by a much larger company and then slowly over time, 
that innovation, uh, you know, uh, disappears. A question from the audience. Uh, what are investors looking for a return on their investment? Using this example, $3 million investment, 25% interest per year uh, based on dividend upon exit 17 times of, or $50 million. What would that be attractive um, in terms of a, a, an investor? Yeah, my understanding is that typically the uh, the uh, institutions uh, that invest in VC funds, uh, they are looking for you know anywhere from a fifteen to twenty percent return on their investment. So typically, as you know, the market gets you six to eight times uh, six to eight percent return on a yearly basis over a long period of time. My understanding is that uh, the institutional investors that invest in VC funds are looking for uh, roughly double uh, that investment. Yeah, and we'll be asking questions about finance a little bit later. One of the things I, I wanted to know was, what did you learn from working with Bill Gates? Uh, Bill Gates, uh, you know, was an incredibly uh, uh, sharp uh, a technologist and a business, you know, person and a very demanding uh, boss. Um, I, you know, for uh, every meeting that we had with him, you know, we would spend weeks uh, preparing um, for the meeting and because we knew that he was incredibly sharp uh, and would ask great, you know, questions. And he was not very patient uh, as a listener. Uh, if you didn't, you know, have the answers, he would, he would let you know that pretty quickly. And so, um uh, while that was not very pleasant, <laughs> uh, going into a meeting with Bill Gates, uh, it sure it really kept us on our toes and uh, made sure that we were applying our best minds, our best ideas in you know winning against the competition. So he was always very focused competitively. Uh, he would take the time to understand the competition, uh, and he would take time to read our memos. You know, so before a meeting, we would write a memo, kind of explaining. Uh, you know, how, how we were addressing the market, what we saw as the market needs and how we would beat the competition. And he would actually take the time to really understand uh, what was going on. And he had amazingly, uh, you know, incisive questions for us. You know, from working with him, uh, you really got a good discipline and that's probably what helped you be successful. Were the things you took away from working with him that you say, you know, I definitely don't want to do it this way. And it, it, it still might have been right the way he did it, but you uh, felt like, hey, in order to for us to be successful, I think some of the things that I learned at Microsoft, I don't want to necessarily carry over to my own companies. Any of those things that you learned? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I didn't want to emulate Bill Gates or, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, also very, very similar personalities, uh, where they didn't have, you know, they would not suffer fools. Um, and so um, I, I don't have that kind of personality, uh, but the key lesson I took away from Microsoft was, you know, uh, creating, a, creating a competition for ideas. Um, so making sure that even when we were discussing ideas, that anyone, uh, regardless of their level, could uh, could uh, chime in, could question what we were doing. And I wanted to make sure that the best ideas came forward and that we would make the best decisions and not make decisions based on, you know, whether it was a VP or somebody else making the, uh, making the contribution. A question from the audience. Does one need to have an MVP prototype to identify product market fit, or can this be attained by conducting interviews? I think you need to do both. Uh, you know, first you need to conduct interviews to really understand the pain point uh, and make sure that the pain point you're addressing is something that matters to customers. Uh, and then uh, building a prototype on MVP uh, to test your ideas as quickly as possible. So don't invest too much time. You know, don't waste six months building a product only to find out that that product that you've built uh, doesn't really address your customers' needs. You know, spend a month, two months at most to build it, uh, build a prototype, and then test that as quickly as possible. So uh, I got the impression you weren't uh, a fan of the minimum viable product, the MVP. Can you elaborate on that? 
but I, I have uh, more an issue with the terminology rather than the methodology. Um, so I do believe in uh, building something quickly uh, and getting that in front of your customers. Uh, but I prefer to use the term minimum delightful product because, uh, you know, you only get one shot at, you know, uh, at getting customers interested in your product. And you, if you build something that is barely functional, um, you know, they may not use the uh, the product and you'll not get any really good uh, feedback. And so uh, what you have to make sure that you are addressing the one or two key things that the customer wants and and that you can delight the customer with those features. So delightful doesn't necessarily mean that the user interface has to be delightful. What I mean is that you're providing certain key features uh, that really address the customer pain point. And, uh, and that's what really delights the, uh, the customer. Okay. Can you talk about Dalton Caldwell from Y Combinator as an interesting framework for evaluating your pivot ideas Please tell us what you learned. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, Dalton has a, uh, you know, nice framework for evaluating different ideas as you pivot uh, your solution. You know, one of them is uh, how big is the market that you're addressing? Uh, second is, uh, is there good founder market fit? Meaning that uh, you have the special expertise and understanding of the market that you're addressing uh, third is, you know, how easy it is to uh, get your product into the market. Can you get your product into the market quickly? And fourth is, uh, you know, are you getting good feedback from your customers? And you kind of rate each of these attributes and then decide uh, which market makes the most sense for you to go after. Question from the audience. Thanks for being here to share your helpful information. What would you suggest small businesses do to get out of the bottleneck stage to scale a little further? I've been in business since 2019. My monthly income and operating expenses are the same each month, but I would like to bring in more income and gain more contracts. One of the hardest things I've encountered is finding a reliable team outside of myself and my one employee, but not sure where to, where to start. So it depends on what kind of business you have and how you're uh, acquiring, you know, customers. Uh, you know, if you need a sales team to acquire more uh, contracts. Um, so one of the key things, uh, obviously, is uh, having enough funding uh, to hire uh, more people. Um, and so you may need to go out and seek funding from investors so that you can actually go hire uh, more sales uh, people. And uh, what I recommend in terms of hiring salespeople is uh, uh, hire what I call hunters, uh, people who are uh, willing to go out in the, into the wild uh, and uh, really uh, prospect uh, for customers. And they have the ability to, you know, they, are, they, are, they don't have any fear and they have the ability to, you know, to cold call customers and find new opportunities that you can go after uh, as opposed to, you know, hiring you know, salespeople who are very comfortable with their business, they're very comfortable with their quota. You don't want those kinds of people. You want to you want to hire hunters who can go, you know, seek new territory, new customers, new prospects for your business. They're insatiable. They the quota is not enough for them, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I always when I hire salespeople, I look for people who sold things that no one ever heard of before. Because mm -hmm. if you if you're selling Bloomberg or you're selling IBM. They kind of sell themselves. But if you're in a startup and nobody knows who you are, that's a really hard thing to sell. So you have to kind of look for salespeople that have sold things that no one ever heard of before that don't have that and then eventually became successful. Do you agree? Oh, uh, totally. Uh, yeah, there's certainly a, a certain class of personalities that you need to hire that can uh, deal with uh, ambiguity can and can really go out there in, into the wild, as, as I put it, uh, and really prospect for customers. Well, we have listeners who are thinking of being entrepreneurs. How can someone know if they're cut out for it and what skills do they need? Now, that's a great uh, question because oftentimes uh, uh, people think that, you know, you need to be a visionary like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates uh, or that you need to have started a business before you were 18. And only those kinds of people can be um, 
uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, nothing could be further from the from the fact. Um, basically, there are three key attributes that I, um, you know, assign to becoming a successful entrepreneur. Uh, number one is uh, you need to have uh, great customer empathy and uh, product orientation. So you need to be very comfortable spending time with potential customers, understanding their needs, and you need to have a product mindset. Uh, you need to be able to come up with solutions that can satisfy your customers' needs. So that's one. The second thing is uh, salesmanship. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be a, you know, you need to have a sales background, but rather that you are very comfortable and articulate in articulating your vision uh, that you can convince uh, potential employees, you can convince customers, you can convince in, in investors, you need to be very comfortable in selling your vision. And third is uh, perseverance and mental fortitude, because you'll go through a lot of hard times and you need to have that mental strength to really power through all the obstacles and, you know, run a marathon uh, as opposed to running a hundred meter dash. One of the uh, audience members wants to know, could you share with us your life changing exits? Cause you've had a few of them. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones that I was uh, very proud of was uh, the uh, acquisition of uh, my first company team on uh, by uh, Blackberry uh, as I mentioned, we built uh, the uh, email technology that became known as BlackBerry Internet uh, Email uh, and and serviced over 50 million BlackBerry uh, users. So I was very proud of the fact that uh, we built technology that could service you know tens of millions of users around the world. And as you know, BlackBerry uh, was known as CrackBerry. Uh, you know, everybody who used BlackBerry were really attached to that device because it provided a great service for their customers. Oh yeah. I was, def <laughs> I was definitely a, a crackberry guy for a number right. of years. And then they didn't improve their products, like the interface and everything. And then they, you know, they barely exist uh, right now. What, what are you working on now? Do you have a new venture? I don't have a new venture. Uh, I'm uh, now uh, spending time more as a, uh, investor, advisor, um, and I've started a new career as an author. Uh, I'm actually now working on my second book, uh, which I hope to have out in the next you know, year or two. Um, so uh, my goal is to convey you know, as much knowledge that I can about my experiences to entrepreneurs uh, around the world. Well, this book is great, by the way. Anybody, uh, even if you are a practicing entrepreneur, already this book is terrific for you but definitely one that should be used in colleges uh often entrepreneurs either co-found a business with someone or bring on skilled people you write in the book about splitting up founder equity what's your formula or what do you recommend in that area yeah there's no specific uh, formula uh that, you know uh, oftentimes that can be a very contentious issue and can break up uh, partnerships between individuals. Um, first of all, what I recommend is that uh, instead of you know using a formula that uh, you you bring uh, on board uh, an experienced person, an experienced investor, for example, an angel investor, and explain to that person what each person brings to the table and have them uh, split up the equity for you so that it's not one person uh, arguing against the other. Uh, it's some person who's really experienced, who you respect, who can uh, basically divide up the equity. Uh, but uh, if you don't have access to such a person, then I do lay out in my book uh, some of the strategies in which uh, you can use to decide how much equity goes to each person. Uh, you know, for example, you know, CEO, uh, if there are two of you, one of you is going to be the CEO, then the CEO should get, you know, roughly 5% uh, more because uh, that person has to make ultimately the decisions that take the company forward. Uh, or if, you know, you have spent time validating the idea or building some IP uh, before you bring on your, your co-founder, then that should get you some uh, benefit in terms of more equity in the range of five to you know, 25%. Uh, so again, I lay out in my book, uh, you know, different situations 
that would allow one person to get more equity than the other person and how to go about uh, dividing up the equity. If you bring people on after you've come up with the idea and, and, and you're, you've built it or you've started the service, whatever that may be, do you think that uh, they should, uh, do you give them the stock up front or do you say to them, hey, you're going to get 5%, but it's going to be phased in or that you have to hit certain benchmarks? How do, how do you suggest it's best to do that part of it? Yeah, typically that's a great uh, point that you bring up because uh, you don't want that person to then leave and take away all the equity. So typically what you do is you agree upon the total amount of equity you want to give them. And then it's it's reverse vested over a four-year period of time. So they, so you might say, okay, I'm going to give you 30% equity, but you are going to earn that 30% over a four-year period of time on a monthly basis. And so if you leave the company uh, after four years, then you get to keep only 25% of that equity. The rest goes back uh, to the equity pool within the company. Yeah, I made the mistake of giving a partner uh, when we started the business, his equity right up front. And then he didn't live up to expectations and the investors wanted to get rid of him, but we couldn't. And so we ended up shutting down the business. So they liked everything about it. They were willing to put more money in, but they felt he was dead weight. And that was a big problem for us. So I learned Mm -hmm. that phasing it in makes a lot more sense. Um, One of the biggest problems entrepreneurs raising money have is determining their valuation because all the time, angels are always asking about this. What do you advise? And you write about this in your book. Yeah, um, you know, valuation can be really, really difficult in the early stages when you don't have really a lot of revenue. Once you have, you know, grown to several million in revenue, then valuation becomes uh, more precise uh, where it's a multiple of revenue. Uh, but in the early stages, uh, it's really a function of uh, how much investors like your idea, what they think of the management team, and how much progress you've made with your product. Uh, so um, the best way uh, to determine valuation is to have multiple investors uh, interested in, in investing in your company and having them uh, write term sheets, uh, defining what valuation they, they want to provide and having them compete with each other uh, to give you the best valuation. So the best valuation is really what is determined by investors who are interested in, in investing in your company. You've raised over 30 million. What's the key to a successful investor pitch and what mistakes should investors avoid? And now, of course, you're looking at both sides because now you're also an angel investor. So right. you're seeing it from both ends. Yeah, I, th- I think the, one of the key things um, in convincing investors to invest in your company is to really tell uh, a story uh, about your company um, and and kind of talk about some of the key trends that are enabling your solution to become attractive in the market. Uh, so in the case of Limoca, for example, which was the language learning platform, um, this was in 2007. Uh, and the world was going through globalization. And so I painted this picture about how, you know, there was rapid globalization and the companies were outsourcing uh, their uh, manufacturing or outsourcing their technology development to other parts of the world. And that, uh, you know, people were really interested in learning English uh, as a result. And so there was a huge demand for learning English in countries like China and Brazil, India, et cetera. And so I painted that picture uh, for my investors, and that's that's really what got them interested in investing in LiveMoca. And what uh, mistakes should they avoid? What mistakes do you see commonly made? Um, that uh, in, in presenting to investors? Yes. Um, I would say that you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the, a common mistake uh, that uh, you know founders. Uh, make um, is uh, really getting to the weeds of the uh, of the product, yeah. Uh, as opposed to selling an overall story or vision, uh, and you know they'll spend time convincing them about how oh, all these great features are built. Uh, whereas uh, that's really not going to convince investors. It's they need to understand what's what's changing uh, today. Why is there going to be a demand for your product? 
uh, what are the key trends that are driving that demand that will make it interesting for me to invest in your company? What criteria should investors use when vetting investors? Because you just don't want to take anybody's money, even if you absolutely need the money, because it becomes a disaster. So uh, because they can, if they don't really understand the business, it's um, very problematic. So what's your criteria for one uh, vetting investors? Yeah, uh, that's one of the things I uh, emphasize to uh, founders as well is that uh, investors will certainly spend time uh, trying to vet you and do background checks on you before they invest in the company. And similarly, uh, you should also be uh, vetting uh, your investors to make sure that there's a good fit. Uh, so some of the things that I emphasize uh, is uh, one, uh, that the investors uh, should have, uh, especially the ones who are getting on your board, uh, is that they should have either startup experience or, op- or deep operational experience. Uh, I've not had very good luck working with investors who only have a financial background because they don't really understand the issues and, and uh, they can't either provide good advice or, or they provide bad advice, <laughs> uh, which can be very dangerous for the company. Uh, and the other thing that I look for is, can they bring to bear resources uh, to help the company grow? Uh, can they help you recruit you know, top management uh, talent? Can they help you get uh, partnerships uh, with companies that can help grow your business? Uh, so those are, those are the two main criteria that I use to evaluate investors. A question from the audience. Wondering if your advice on a, on a product that is relevant to both B2B and B2C, what are the pros and cons of either route to market in your experience as a founder, as an investor? Would you recommend, whoops, excuse me, would you recommend uh, finding a, a reliable uh, team outside of myself and my employee, but not sure where to start? Oh, no, wrong. Sorry about that. Went backwards too far. Sorry, you want to repeat the question? Sure. Uh, The question is, what are the pros and cons of either uh, route to market in your experience as a founder and an investor? Yeah, I mean, the the route to, uh, you know, B2B or B2C can be very uh, different. uh, with B2C, uh, uh, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, through advertising on Google or Facebook to get customers to try out your your product. Uh, with B2B, um, you need to hire an enterprise sales force, uh, convince customers. Uh, so that can be very, very challenging. It can take time to really um, drive sales for your product. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a more of a B2C guy and I always recommend people to go down that path uh, first uh, because you need to, uh, first of all, prove that your product, uh, you know, works really well for end customers because if you don't really have a successful, uh, you know, product in terms of usability and and ease of use, et cetera, uh, you're not going to be very successful. So I always recommend a B2C path uh, before, you know, proceeding on a B2B path. You wrote about the reasonable time period for raising capital. Please talk about the timeline and what happens when raising capital. What's, you know, what's the process like? It, it really depends on the stage of the uh, company. Uh, in the earlier stages, uh, when you don't really have much proof of uh, customer adoption, it can take a long time. Um, generally, I recommend that you set aside six months to raise, uh, you know, funding for your product. Uh, of course, if you are a successful prior entrepreneur, you have uh, a great product. You know, you have customer traction. Then that time frame can become more like, you know, two to three months. Uh, but uh, if you're really in the early stages and don't really have proof of adoption, customer adoption, then it can take you a fairly long period of time to raise money. So I would say more like six months. And, and the idea, right, would be to have multiple suitors because if you only have one suitor, it it could drag on forever, and yeah, you wouldn't I mean, get the multiple, best possible yeah, deal. Yeah, exactly. Because with multiple suitors, then you can play off one uh, person against the other. You can uh, you can tell other investors, hey, I have already I already have a term sheet. 
uh, and I'm going to uh, take that unless you come back to the table with your own term sheet. So you need to move quickly. Uh, so it's always great to get you know one term sheet uh, on the table so that you can drive uh, you know a quick reaction from the other investors and drive up the valuation for your company. You recommend being specific about the amount of money you need, but being inexact about the valuation. Can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes uh, when you go meet with investors, uh, they will ask you, um, you know, do you have a valuation in mind? And my what I recommend to uh, founders is not to provide a valuation and instead to say that, hi, hey, I'll let the market decide what the valuation should be. Uh, because, um, you know, it may turn out that if you have multiple investors willing to invest in your company, that they may actually come to you with a valuation that's higher than the valuation that you have in mind. So you don't want to shortchange yourself. Um, you know, if you think your valuation should be 15 million, but you now have two or three investors uh, bidding for your business, maybe they'll pay, you know, 20 million or 25 million for the company. Uh, so you don't want to shortchange yourself by, by telling them what valuation you think is appropriate for your company. Yeah, I think that makes sense, but they always ask that question. Um, should you look to raise enough money to get you to profitability or break even? And what if you can only raise enough to get, uh, get to part of the way that you wanted to get to? What should you do? Well, as you know, with most startups, it's a long journey to get to profitability. Uh, you know, uh, many companies don't even get to profitability uh, even when they are going IPO. You know, Uber, for example, you know, uh, did not have, was not generating profits uh, when they went IPO and still not generating, you know, profits. So, uh, but that does not prevent you from raising money. Uh, you just have to show significant traction from one one uh, funding round to another so that investors are confident that they invest in you, that you will take them, you know, you grow the business another two to 300% before you raise the next round of uh, funding. Uh, should you have a board of directors or advisors and, and which one should you have? And what is your criteria for picking them? Yeah, I, I recommend, uh, well, uh, if you have investors in a company, then they will by definition, require a board of directors uh, and they will be on that board. Uh, so you will have no choice but to have a board of directors. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, having a board of directors, having a board of advisors can be really valuable if you have the right people, people who have great operational expertise or great startup experience uh, or can, you know, help you, you know, seek uh, partners uh, help you with your technology development. So you need to really understand what are the areas where you need help and then build out your board of advisors, board of directors accordingly. How important is it for an entrepreneur to hold the majority control of the company stock? Because every entrepreneur I deal with, they always want to make sure they hold on to at least 51%, but yet there have been huge successful stories where the company the founder didn't own that much. So what's your advice in this area? Yeah, it's very rare uh, over time for founders to hold um, majority uh, control. Uh, you do have examples of companies like Google and Facebook where the founders still maintain majority control, but that is very rare uh, because over time you will get diluted to far less than 50%. Uh, and the only way to, you know, remain a CEO is to continue to execute and really do a great job of, uh, of uh, you know, taking your company public or getting a good exit for your company. Uh, and it's also been shown that, uh, you know, even if you have majority control, that you may not be able to remain a CEO. Uh, a good example is a company like Zynga, where the founder had majority control but the company floundered um, after some initial success and the, the founder had to step down and hire an external CEO because he just was not delivering the results. So having majority control does not always you know, dictate that you will uh, remain in control as a CEO. Uh, last question. What was your criteria for hiring the right people for a startup? 
Uh, I always uh, focused on hiring the brightest minds. Uh, so to me, uh, having a great uh, ability, uh, uh, you know, was more expensive than more, was more important than having great experience. And I wanted to, to hire people who could span multiple areas of responsibility. Um, so for example, I wanted to hire product people who had great technical depth as well. And then I wanted to hire engineers who understood, who had, you know, good business minds and who could understand customer requirements and really, uh, you know, uh, have them, give them the responsibility to go build a great product. So in the early stages of a company, you want to hire people who are really smart, who can span multiple uh, experiences and can grow with the company. And then over time, you hire, you know, experts in each domain as the company grows. But initially, it's important to hire really smart people who can really span multiple experiences. Sharice, we all enjoyed you. Uh, the book is terrific. I'm going to make sure I send the link out to everyone uh, because uh, people are writing, how do I get this book? So I'll make sure I send out a link for this. We look forward to your next book and to have you on again. And thank you very much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you, Mark. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for uh, participating today. Have a great weekend. Please stay safe and stay cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.